Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. Today is the day we're diving into the mysterious and patience-testing world of feeding little ones whole and healthy food. Specifically, we're sharing our best strategies for raising adventurous eaters. We'll be covering when to start varying flavors in the diet, best strategies for food introduction for infants, toddlers, kids, and grown-ups too, importance of attitude and environment around mealtime, the nutritional importance of seasoning food from the start, how to sneak in the good stuff, and when to start getting kids involved in the cooking process. Hi, everyone, and thank you once again for joining us. I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition, where we offer a 14-week certification program in culinary nutrition. Joining me, as always, is Josh Catalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program, and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Today is an important topic that hits close to home for us, as we have a two-year-old of our own. And as you can imagine, with both of us being nutritionists, we take feeding our little man very seriously. We don't just believe it's important for his growth and development. We know it's important for his growth and development. Now, this was a topic I spoke a lot about before having a child, but always wondered how my tips would work when put into actual practice. Since day one with our baby, we had a lot of people saying, oh, you'll see. And we sort of joke about the you'll sees that we just had so many people doubting whether we could put our intentions into practice and do it successfully. So now today, and we can only speak to where we're at from today, we have succeeded in raising an adventurous eater. And I know it can change at any times, but we've been able to achieve mealtimes that are joyful and as calm as they could be with a rambunctious two-year-old sitting with us. Now, let's sort of rewind and go back to the beginning of the basics of what kids need to eat, what babies need, toddlers, what humans need in order to survive. All other species on the planet don't follow a food guide, don't have hundreds and hundreds of books on the topic. They're not needing to seek a specialist to tell them what they need to be eating. Like the squirrels are eating the acorns and the bears are finding the berries. And certain animals will even find certain herbs to help them deal with certain deficiencies or health issues. How come humans don't? Funny you should ask, Megan, because we actually do. And there's a fascinating study I'd love to discuss and, and bring up. I love this study. Yeah, which was done in 1939. Now, today, if we tried to do this study, ethics boards would not allow it to go forth. So we have this pretty cool data from the study that tells us a lot about how our tastes are formed. And it was done in an orphanage, actually. They took 15 infants ranging from age 6 to 11 months. And what they did was they put food in front of them and allowed them to choose which foods they could eat to see what would happen. Each meal, they had about 20 to 25 minutes to do that. And there would be six bowls in front of them with six different foods from this list of 33. I'll I'll give you an idea of what those are in a moment. And they could choose and the nurses were advised not to help them with any of the foods. And I'm guessing these foods were not goldfish crackers, string cheese, uh, noodles and butter. So what were the foods these kids were, or the babies? How old were they? Did you say all that already? 
I did cover that. Yeah, uh, six to 11 months. Okay, so what were the foods that were put before these basic, these babies? Yeah, and also to mention that this was a six-year study. So okay. seeing how their health would progress over this time. So there was 33 foods, actually 34 foods, and they ranged from like water. So I guess that's not really a food. Well. Sweet milk, apples, bananas, orange juice. So some of the basic things we're all familiar with. But the list also include things like bone marrow, sweetbreads, which is actually thymus gland, brains, liver, kidneys, a variety of whole grains, you know. So it was a lot of foods that they were eating back around that time, which, you know, today people would be like, I would never eat that stuff. Yeah, or I would never feed that to my child. Yeah, but they were putting it in front of these kids that obviously they had absolutely no idea what these foods were, right? They had no words for it. They were just choosing them based on experience. Now, some of the kids actually came into the study malnourished. You know, there was, I think, four of them that had rickets and a a few others that were quite sickly. And by the end of the study, you ready for this, Megan? Oh, I'm holding on to my seat. They were not just all in good health. They were all in superb health. And this was from six years of them choosing whatever foods they wanted that were put in front of them. And what was also interesting they noted in the study is like when some of them were sick, they would choose other specific foods like beets, for example. And then when they weren't sick anymore, they'd go back to others. The the kids who had rickets actually chose the cod liver oil. And I got to tell you, back in the day, cod liver oil didn't taste like it did today. No, it was not lemon flavored. Absolutely not. So what we learned from this is that, you know, we don't want to impress upon our kids our preconceived ideas about food. We just want to put in front of them the most nutritious food we can find. And see what they take. And see what they... And so with that in mind, we did use that a little bit in... I mean, not fully, but we did introduce different types of foods at different times and see what would be picked up. So the first key when you're looking to raise an adventurous eater is that, quite honestly, the parents need to be adventurous eaters. So what a mother eats while pregnant will impact the flavor profile and acceptance of different flavors of the baby. And some of the foods often cited are things like garlic and onions and eating different foods that have different strong tastes. Now, this can be a challenge for a lot of women when they're pregnant. I know that I I went an entire month basically only eating white potatoes. I had another month where all I wanted was oranges. And I did my best as long as a whole food to just go with it. But enabling and ensuring that you are varying those flavors is the very first step. Now, short of that happening, when you have the baby and you are breastfeeding, that also has impact. I mean, on the flip side, eating a lot of junk food or processed grains or dairy or soy can also impact the baby's health and well-being if he, she, the child, or you are sensitive to those. So what you eat does impact the breast milk, but it can also vary the flavor of the milk. So having a varied palate if you are breastfeeding, is also important in introducing different flavors and raising that adventurous eater, a a baby who is accustomed to different tastes. The next step is when we look at food introductions. So we had a lot of fun with food introductions. Uh, Josh loves sharing this video of one of the very first foods we gave Finn, which was what, Josh? Sauerkraut juice. Yes. Which actually isn't a food at all. It's just that liquid that you get when you make sauerkraut, which is loaded with probiotics, has a very strong taste. I mean, even just thinking about it right now, my 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 cheeks are starting to tingle. It's <laughs> kind of like that lemon effect. But, you know, we wanted to start with something that wasn't sweet, something yeah. that was quite strong, 
as a as a first food. Yeah, so we started with kraut juice and bone broth and sort of went from there with savory purees. So instead of doing the sweet rice cereals or or the pablums and that kind of thing, we went straight for the whole foods, one food at a time, and we're not going to get heavily into food introduction. There is a great book called, I think it's called Super Nutrition for Babies. And there's also the Little Warriors Nutrition Group on Facebook that has lots of information if you really want to go deep into this. But we started introducing solids after the six-month mark. And we started with the savories and later added sweeter things. But even when we did sweet things, one of the things we did with all of our purees was we seasoned them. So if I was making, say, a butternut squash puree, I was putting in turmeric and cinnamon and a little bit of sea salt, sometimes even a pinch of cayenne uh, to really start to influence that palate. I didn't put in garlic and onions right away because that can also cause a lot of gassiness and we want we didn't want to put them in distress. But our son never ate pureed banana. He never had pureed mango. There was no pureed fruits. The closest we got was apricot because of the iron content. But again, that was loaded with cinnamon and cardamom and clove. Um, I have a post actually on food introductions with these puree examples. So the adventurous eating starts when they start eating and be brave about it. You know, you you really, you want to do one food at a time to avoid any extreme sensitivity and allergy, but there's more spices in your pantry than salt and pepper. And we don't even use pepper. So uh, use those spices and, and, and start introducing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple other foods just to mention, you know, one, one of them was liver. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember you You made them as part of purees. That was one way you did them. Another way is you boiled them. Yeah. Um, and we just, in certain situations, we just gave it to him straight up. Like it was a piece of meat, you know, we just chopped it up and he ate it. Yes. We gave him sardines. Yes. Yeah. Those um, were not his favorite, but he did eat them. Don't, those weren't his favorite. That, that only lasted for a very short phase and yeah. he kind of caught on, but he did eat it quite a number of times. Um, so yeah, you just got to put it in front of them. Yeah. There's an amazing window of time and it will vary per child that they won't be able to fully spit out the food yet. So there's this amazing window of time from about seven, eight months when you've got more foods in the rotation till around 12 to 14 months that you want to give them the most strongest tasting, nutrient dense, powerful foods you can. And another one was fish row Mm -hmm. that we did. Yeah. Another really important part about the food introduction is the attitude around the food. So, you know, as an adult, like if I made Josh this experimental meal and I put it on the table and was like, I don't know if you're going to like this. It's got this in it. And I know you don't like this, but like, just try it at least. Josh isn't going to go into it excited about like, yeah, mealtime. I can't wait to try this. You're going to go into it with trepidation. The same goes with kids and toddlers and infants. Like they feel that energy. So the attitude you have when you present a meal is really, really important. And from the start too, when we presented the meal, we tell them exactly what's in his plate. Just like, you know, if you're at a nice restaurant and the chef came out, the chef de cuisine. (laughs) He said, "Oh, we've got the beautiful poison steak uh, from from the wild." I with have no a, idea what with au jus. And uh, anyway, I'm not gonna put myself to shame with that impression. But uh, yeah, we would kind of go through the plate in the bowl or the bowl and talk about what each item was. Yes. And Finley actually can like now name every single thing that we get in our grocery list. Yeah, it's so cute when he's like hahum and onion and and the, the thing now as a two-year-old. Hahum is mushroom, by the way. Is he can also say what he does and doesn't want by the food name. 
which is is a bit of a, a double edge. <laughs> it's both great and a little bit challenging at times. So the next one is seasoning the food. And I talked about that a little bit earlier, but you know, people try and introduce foods to kids. It's like plain steamed broccoli, plain green beans, plain cooked carrots. I don't want to eat that. So seasoning the food using ghee or coconut oil or olive oil. So you're putting that fat on it, adding some salt, sea salt or Himalayan rock salt, and putting different spices, turmeric, cinnamon. Again, using that full pantry of spices enhances and promotes the flavor of the food. And then limits your child's knowing of plain bland foods. So it is more inviting and enticing. One thing that's been quite remarkable for me to see is his okayness with spicy. Yes. So we've, you know, experimented with, very, you know, small amounts, like we don't throw a whole jalapeno on his plate, but, you know, small amounts of cayenne or things that are spicy, even ginger, you know, the bite that you get from ginger. And he's been totally okay with that. He loves that, actually. Yeah. And these these herbs and spices are powerful anti-cancer herbs and spices or foods, you know, like they have these chemicals in them that decrease inflammation, that fight cancer, that are great for the brain that do a whole bunch of other really amazing things as well. So we want to get them in early. They also help promote digestion, which is really important in that early stage of, of learning to how to the body, for the body to learn how to process these different foods. So there's so, I mean, we've talked in great depth through our episodes this season on the health benefit of these different spices and getting those in is like another powerful immune supportive, anti-inflammatory, disease preventative measure we can be taking. Absolutely. Now, digestion is a function of the parasympathetic nervous system. This is our rest and digest part of the nervous system. And if we're not in that system, if we haven't activated it, we're not turning on digestion. Yeah. We're not turning on our internal organs, not just digestion, but liver detoxification, a lot of other things that go on. So that environment that we sit in when we eat a meal and even the before and the after is really important to make sure that we're getting the most out of our food. I think most people have had the experience where they go to a nice restaurant, the lights are dim, there's nice music, they have good company, good conversation, they're taking their time, the food doesn't come so quickly and they just feel so good after they eat that meal. Yes, yes. And I have a whole chapter in my book, Undiet, about I think it's called like you, it's chapter six, you weren't raised in a barn, like the importance of dining at a table intended for dining. There was recently a story about the decline in the use of the dining table or the dinner table to have meals that people are eating their meals all over the place. And that impairs both a child and an adult's ability to digest, to enjoy, to the whole meal process. It's not just the food you're eating, but it's what you're digesting and assimilating and the environment, like you said, you need to be in a, a restful state to digest the food. Yeah. And I have to say, I see a lot of clients with a completely messed up nervous system and how that vagus nerve, there, there's a nerve called the vagus nerve that has to activate the digestive tract and it's lost its connections. It's, yeah. it's sort of forgotten how to activate digestion. We actually have to retrain that using various techniques. But uh, this is from a lifetime of being on the run, on rushing and not having that good environment to actually eat your meal. So how does this come back to eating with the child? Yeah, well, you said it right in your question. The first point here is that we do eat with our child. There was very short, there was a, like one maybe period of time where his naps were like so early that we couldn't eat with him. But other than that, we have every meal together as a family. 
Well, except lunch is when we're at work. Except but, lunches, yeah. But we do have breakfast and, and we have made it a priority. And I know this is impossible for everybody. We've made it a priority to be able to be home for dinner during this mm-hmm. period when he's eating dinner a little earlier. Yeah. And even, you know, if you are able to be there present when your child is eating as well, you know, we're not like roaming around doing something else. We're actually sitting down and eating. I don't even think of it as roaming around. When I picture how most children are having their dinners, they're basically plunked in a high chair in the middle of the room while there is complete chaos ensuing, whether it's like preparing the meal for the rest of the family or for the parents or getting kids ready for school or whatever it is. And I'm a highly sensitive person and I have a really hard time. Have I have no appetite in a highly hectic or loud environment. There's certain restaurants that I'm sure have amazing food, but I can't eat in them because they're just too loud that I don't have that experience of enjoying the meal. And the same goes for kids. And we talked in our house rules about, you know, our very first episode of the show that before we start, we have this moment of gratitude and we take a deep breath. And so cultivating that calm environment and sitting and being patient to eat with your child, no matter what you're serving them, is going to promote the health and well-being of the child. And the likelihood is greater that they're going to eat what's in front of them. And create good habits for for a lifetime. Now, of course, you know, this is this is sort of the optimal environment. Yes. We understand that each person has their own life situation. So it's a matter of just trying to get as close to this as possible. Now, Megan, when we're on the go, when we're going out, what are some things that we do to make sure that we're prepared? I just thought of something that I'd like to mention going back to the calm environment. Um, Because every family is different and there are unique circumstances and not everyone has the same freedoms we have and we fully recognize that. One of the biggest things that you easily and everyone can avoid is putting on a video or a television to distract your child while they're eating. And that is creating a lifelong bad eating habit. We shouldn't be eating in front of the television and neither should our children. So just one thing that everybody can do, which is turn off the TVs, turn off the videos, the iPads. Eating is a time to focus on the food that you're eating. And It can be so difficult, we recognize, because it's a quick fix in the moment, but it can easily become the thing you do the next day and the next day and the next day, and then it becomes an even greater challenge to break. And even if it's just twice a week, if you can make it happen twice a week that everyone has dinner together, that's really powerful. And if you think about, and I've written about this in my book too, but there's so many lessons now that kids have and that parents are hither and thither to and fro driving to and from different dance classes and sporting. Make sure that there that is not happening every single night of the week, that some things are more important. And, and I firmly believe, and I don't care if you don't agree, a dinner as a family is fundamental to the health and well-being of children, of parents, and of a family unit. Absolutely, Megan. So going to those snacks on the go, you have some good tips there? Yes. We we sometimes sort of laugh about the the one-way cups and we see so many kids getting strolled along and food is treated as a distraction or as an activity. And it's obviously not always avoidable, but try and avoid it. If you can give your child a snack for five minutes before you leave the house, do that. Or if you need to have a snack while you're out, just stop for a moment and let them eat and then carry on so that they're not only going to go in the stroller when they've got their cup of Cheerios or their muffin or cookie or whatever it is that that they're getting. And avoiding that snack on the go habit, again, whenever possible, also helps to reduce the need for those quick 
mess-free packaged snack foods. And it enables you to, again, have one more opportunity to pack in something that is homemade or whether it's like a little, you know, we often Finley will eat hummus by the handful, but things like that, that you obviously don't necessarily want them eating in your car seat or in a stroller, but they can have that moment to eat that snack calmly and and then carry on with the next activity. And so even if you are out and about, it's just about stopping and having that five or 10 minutes for the child to eat that in a calmer setting. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Now we're going to take a quick break so you can meet Caitlin Isles, an Academy of Culinary Nutrition graduate. Before the school went online, I offered the program live in person in my downtown Toronto kitchen, and Caitlin was one of our very first program graduates. Here's Caitlin to share how our flagship program has helped her build a well-rounded practice serving women on the east coast of Canada. Hello, everyone. My name is Caitlin Isles, and I'm a 2013 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. Back then, the program was done in Megan's Pink Kitchen, and it provided me with an incredible breadth of practical and tangible culinary experience that really rounded out all the theoretical knowledge I learned in nutrition school. What continues to impress me, and why I'm still so involved in the program, is that Megan has continued to expand and update the curriculum as the field of nutrition research continues to evolve. The greatest gift I've received from the course was the confidence to host my own cooking classes filled with recipes I was able to create thanks to the skills I learned in the program. It has enabled me to become my own boss and to do the things that I love every single day. Not a day goes by where I don't use the skills I learned in this program, either personally or professionally, in my cooking classes, when I'm blogging, hosting live demos, offering weekend retreats, or sharing recipes and meal plans with my coaching clients. I'm so grateful for Megan for creating this incredible program and hope that you'll join us as a culinary nutrition expert. To learn more about Caitlin's offerings, please visit caitlinisles.ca. And I have a link for you over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. Just click on this episode for all the goods, plus some bonus episode material. The Culinary Nutrition Expert Program is now offered exclusively online, which means you can join us from anywhere in the world. And if you do join us at one of the certified levels this year, you might just have Caitlin as your dedicated program coach. If you want to learn more about becoming a culinary nutrition expert before the year is through, head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program to learn more and register. Now let's get back to today's episode. Going back to mealtime practices, I think, you know, not just with kids, but with adults too, you know, a big thing that we promote is meal prep, right? Yes. You know, taking one day out of the week or, or like a Sunday and a Wednesday to do an hour or two of meal prep makes a huge difference for the week and actually saves you a ton of time in the long run. And money, as we mentioned in our eating healthy on a budget. So it's the same thing with kids. You got to have something ready for them all the time. Always have, you know, something in the kitchen that you know that they'll eat. Yes. And one of, and you know what, we will put this in our show notes bonus, which is these veggie burgers, these veggie cakes that our son loves. They are made with oat flour and chickpea flour. So they've got some protein. They are gluten-free, but we also load in chopped mushrooms, red pepper, zucchini, and carrots, basically some of the veggies that I, and onions and their seasoning in them. But it's some of the ingredients that we sometimes have a harder time getting Finn to eat on their own. But so we prep these, we always have them ready so that if it's like lunchtime and I have nothing that I can make fresh or we don't have leftovers from dinner the night before, we can pull that out. But I also always make sure, we also always make sure we have one of these veggie burgers. And there's a few foods like this that 
we know we can have for backup. So if we're ever trying a brand new meal or a brand new food and we don't know if he's going to take to it the first time, we have this as a backup. So we're not going to force him to eat something he just doesn't like. And we'll get on the topic of the selective eaters in a moment. But we also have something that we know he will like that isn't a compromise. It's just something else, but it's a sure thing. There's certain times too that he doesn't actually really want to eat a lot at a meal. Exactly. And yeah. we've, we're okay with that. I mean, one of the things we joke about, he's such a little pudge ball. <laughs> he's not going to starve. And he goes through different phases. So, you know, like certain times he's teething and yeah. he just wants to eat less. Yeah. Um, and we're, again, we're okay with that. And what we have found is that the next meal he eats more or a couple of days later, he's sort of back to where he used to be eating ridiculous amounts of food. And it's just a phase usually. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, so far only been a phase. And so when he is being extra selective and we know that it's not because he just doesn't like anything on his plate, but it's more that he's just not that hungry. We don't give in and give him the things like a banana or, you know, the sweet things that he'll a hundred percent eat every time. So that's a really important point. Now there's something with the terminology I really like that you've done, Megan. Yes. You know, a lot of people call these kids who don't really eat a lot of foods, picky eaters. I despise that term. Yeah. And it's giving them a title. So what do you use instead, Megan? I call it selective. I don't think there's, except maybe Josh, any adult on the planet that likes every single food. There's very few things you won't eat. Salerno. In terms of, oh, no, but we we covered that one. We found a way in, in for that. Some kids will like foods at certain times and not at other times. So one of the things I have found is often if I put something down and he will not eat it right away. I also don't take it away right away. What can happen is that when we give him enough time and we sit and eat and we're eating over the span of 15 or 20 minutes, he might have a taste of that thing he at first did not want. And so we don't let him take stuff off his plate. We leave it there and he sometimes comes to it. We've also found that There's times where we give him something to eat and he'll eat a ton of it. And we're like, oh, we have a new winner. And then we give it to him five days later and he won't touch it. And so you also have to be okay with that. They're being selective. Just like we don't feel like having the same food every single day. And some days we want something and some days we don't. That's why we vary the diet. So varying that diet for your child is really important. But also recognizing that if you introduce something once and they don't like it, it's not like done. Here's two things for the selective eaters leave it on the plate and let them just get used to it, get acquainted with it. And the second is you have to reintroduce foods. Uh, Leanne Phillipson from Sprout Ride, who's like the baby food expert, talks about having to introduce foods anywhere from 10 to 14 times, I think is her number, before they'll eat something. So it can be disheartening if you've spent all this time trying to cook something in the kitchen and you're like, oh my goodness, they're going to just love this. I did that with fish sticks because he's a little bit selective around fish. Sometimes he'll eat tons of it and sometimes none. And I made these fish sticks and I thought he would love them. He was having none of it. And I was just like, oh, mom failed. But we tried it and we'll probably try it again. Taking us back to the Kara Davis study that I was talking about in the in the beginning. Oh, let's wrap it all up, even though we're not done yet. But yeah, she had put these foods in front of them, right? And as if you recall, they were choosing certain foods at different times. Right. right. So, you know, kids have that innate sense of what they might need in that time. And we have to trust that. The other thing is that she gave they gave them 20 to 25 minutes at least to kind of go through that process. 
there were times where our son was taking uh, like up to an hour to eat his meal. Yes, I remember those times. And it was tedious uh, for us. But by the end, he he ate it all in his in his own sweet time. Mm -hmm. He did. The last thing is, in addition to varying the options so that they're getting what they need at different times, but we also eat the same meals as our son. So we've not gotten into the habit of making a backup meal or making him something different, which right now has limited uh, what we eat. But we have found that he eats way better when we're all having the same thing. And even if ours is varied just a little, like we have a big salad and we only give him the various toppings of that salad, like whether it's a grilled chicken or tempeh and all that stuff, we don't necessarily give him all the lettuce. He knows when it's not the same. And he eats more when we're all eating the same foods together. And sometimes he eats quicker than us if he's not eating as much. Oftentimes he just takes way longer. You'll notice we've spent a lot of time not necessarily focusing on the actual foods, but on the environment that sets us up for success in feeding children. And that's really, really important to notice. And one last detail that I think is is crucial is actual what they're eating on. Right. Dishes and cutlery, right? Yeah. You know, we we have not or we've chosen not to separate the foods. You know, a lot of toddler dishes like plates and bowls and whatnot, they have like these different sections where you're supposed to keep the food separate from each other. The dividers. Yeah. Like the, the old TV dinners. Or but what we still do that. Yeah. What we started with was just a bowl and we would put all the food in the bowl and he would just, you know, eat from that. And then we introduced a plate with yeah. a cool suction thing on the bottom so he wouldn't throw it across, across the room and and we would put it all on there. Uh, we were never a big fan of those toddler plates that had all these different sections on them, right? So we wanted the flavors to mix. We wanted food to touch other food. The other thing that we tried to avoid was just putting food directly on a, on like a high chair tray. You know, we wanted, again, to make it seem like he was eating the way, you know, adults eat and, yeah. and move towards that. It also allowed us to also get a sense of how much he was actually eating. So we put food out as a portion in his bowl and we would know if he ate all that or if he wanted more as opposed to just giving him bits and pieces of different things. And the result is that for the most part, he eats like, you know, we all sit at the table. We have a, the high chair we have is called the stokey. So he's pulled up to the table. His bowl is on the same surface as our bowls or plates. And He's usually using his cutlery. I feel like right now he often will just look at us and go hand if he wants to like <laughs> take a handful of something, which is also fine. He likes to put a napkin on his lap because we always put napkins on our laps. But also to mention, we started the cutlery very early. Yes. We started with a spoon. He would yep. just kind of like hold it in his hand most of the time. And then he started to dip it. And then he started to fling fruit across the room with it <laughs> or at your forehead. And then he started to use it to eat and get better and better and more proficient at that. Then we introduced a fork and he's gotten pretty good at using a fork. And now actually a lot of the time he asks for our cutlery and yeah. he's using like really big spoons and forks and everything, but he's quite good with that. Yeah. So the next thing is that we've talked a lot about the, the styles of eating and feeding. We've talked about flavor introductions and spices and varying the diet and introducing different foods repeatedly. Now, there is a time when you do need to sneak in the veggies. And we've come up with some tried and tested sure winners that are basically just loaded with foods that he may be more resistant to eating 
just on their own. So Josh actually came up with the burger invention. Well, it's not an invention, but we do these burgers. You want to talk about the burgers? Yeah, we put garlic in them. We put onion in them. We put turmeric in them. Sometimes a couple other spices like cumin and then some salt. But we started by using a variety of different meats for those burgers. So we used, obviously, beef was one of them. We used venison. We used bison. We used this mix that we get at our butcher, which has organ meats in it. So it's like a combination. We've used turkey. We've used chicken. We just get different one every week and make a whole variety of these burgers. And he'd, he'd eat them all. Yeah. We just cut them into pieces. Sometimes there's a dip with it and he eats it. And then we also have the veggie burgers, which we've got the recipe. We'll share both of these recipes and the resources because these are just, I feel like if he's eating even half of one, he's getting so much nourishment and he's getting what he needs to function till the next meal that if that's all he eats, that's no problem. Right. And now he's starting to get into smoothies. Yeah. So we love smoothies ourselves because we can fit so much stuff in it. I use them a lot with my clients, recommending things to them so they can get a lot into it. And it's a great thing for kids too. Yes. And yeah, like Josh said, you can hide a bunch of stuff in it. And since it's summertime, we often freeze them. And for some reason, you can get even more into something when you freeze it and it suddenly becomes a treat. So I recently posted on my Instagram, this popsicle that was loaded with kale, cilantro, cauliflower, hemp seeds, all these good foods that, you know, Finley does not love cauliflower. But in this popsicle, he was all over it. So that's a great thing. I love, Josh, what you've done with Finn's oatmeal when we make him an oatmeal or a millet porridge or, you know, with any any different type of gluten-free grain. So how do you soup up the morning porridge? Right. So we create a mulch. Me and Finley actually do it together in the uh, nut grinder. We pour in some flax seeds. We pour in, and sometimes I vary it up in terms of these combos. We'll use sesame seeds. We'll put in pumpkin seeds and goji berries. And that's usually kind of the mulch that we make. We grind that all up into a powder and that goes into the oatmeal. Sorry, you sprinkle that in once the oatmeal's done cooking. Exactly. Yeah, like a tablespoon or two. Yeah, we do that at the end. And in the oatmeal, we include obviously our gluten-free oats, but also sort of a different fruity thing every day to kind of make it nice and palatable and tasty. So sometimes we shred like a half an apple in. Sometimes I'll put uh, Zante currants in. Sometimes I'll put raisins in. Sometimes I'll cut up a prune, a few prunes and put that in. Uh, Sometimes I'll do figs. Sometimes I'll do mulberries. Apricots. The list goes on. Yeah. And there's, you know, these are all amazing fruits that that we add. And we we like cooking it in so the, uh, those dried fruits get reconstituted. Yeah, and you can also do it with shredded sweet potato, carrots. And then I always, we take turns making it depending on who's working out at that time and who's making breakfast. But I also add different spices like cinnamon and clove and sometimes some turmeric and we'll do different different things to it so that it is varied and we vary up the grains too so it's not always oats. Then we also add flax oil or coconut butter or coconut oil or all of the above. So this oatmeal is suddenly like an extremely nutrient powerful meal that he loves. Megan? Yes, Josh. I've even gone as far as using a tea for the water. I haven't done that in a Uh, while though, but uh, I used to do that with nettle tea. Yes. I would brew that ahead of time and I'd actually cook the oats in the nettle tea. I do the nettle tea as the base in smoothies. You could do any kind of like a peppermint tea is good. You don't want to do any anything that's too much of a nervine tonic and you definitely don't want to be doing a stimulant or a caffeinated tea. 
I just remembered that when we were first dating, I feel like our dating life comes up in in a lot of episodes, but you were so hardcore that you would save the water from steaming broccoli and then use that the next day to make like an oatmeal or your elixir, put that water into your smoothie. You bet I would. (laughs) That comes from Michael Pollan, actually, where he says, drink the spinach water in his book, Food Rules. There you go. Yeah. So I took that pretty seriously. And the other thing that we have found is also a guaranteed winner and a great way to sneak in a lot of different ingredients is in curries and stews. And this is where don't underestimate your child's palate. Our son loves my red Thai curry, my coconut curry, my the butter chicken we do. We'll do a lamb tagine and a bunch of these recipes are on my blog. So we will link to them. But these are all favorites of his that I love making because they're basically set it and forget it. You can prep it in the morning, even cook it in the morning, reheat it when you get home. They also freeze really, really well. So we'll often make, we now have to make a double batch if we want to have leftovers in most cases because the three of us eat a lot together. But they are just simple, straightforward, flavor-rich, have all the spices, loads of varied ingredients, and throw that in a bowl for all of us, and we're all happy. So those are our tips on how to get in those amazingly powerful vegetables into our kids. Now, we haven't really gotten to the age where we go to or get invited to a lot of birthday parties. We may never get to a stage where anyone (laughs) invites us to their birthday party. But that's actually one of the biggest complaints I hear from my clients and just from other people that, oh, you wait, you know, when they go to all those birthday parties, he's going to be eating cake and pop and, and pizza and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, full disclosure, we're not really there yet. He's almost two. Maybe in another season of this podcast, we'll cover that. Uh, but eating out um, and and at schools. Uh, so we, we definitely have to deal with that right now. He's part of a school program. So how do we handle that, Megan? We pack him his own snack. And so far, there's been no issue with it. He knows he has his own snack and he's absolutely fine w- about it. And it's not that there's anything necessarily that wrong with the snack they're serving, but there's some things that I wouldn't want him to have. And again, he's so far fine with it. When we are... You know, last week you and you were away and Finley and I baked cookies together. We made you my oatmeal chocolate chip cookies and he had so much fun making them. He ate a little bit of the batter, which was fine. He didn't have any of the chocolate. But once we cooked them, he didn't ask for it because he's never had one. He's never had, he's had some muffins, um, my banana berry oat amazing muffins in the end diet cookbook. But because he doesn't, isn't programmed that he gets a dessert after every meal or that snacks are always sweet, there's been no problem. There's been no issue. And he knows that he doesn't get snacks on the go. And and so because of that, we've been able to manage that. There will be challenges to come, we know, with birthdays, but we are very firm on certain things. And we also know that we will take the extra time and the effort to make him his own cupcake if that's what it takes or to provide his own pizza if that's what it takes. And what I recommend for those of you going through this, especially if you have a child that has you know, an extreme sensitivity to sugar, which most children do, or can't have gluten or can't have dairy, is make a whole batch of cupcakes. Make a whole pizza that you want to that you want to send with them, freeze it so that when you have an event, you know you can just take out your kids' snacks, let them eat it on the plates they're going to have. If there's a few treats there that you're okay with, let them have that too so that they can still participate. And ultimately, the school snacks and birthday parties, it just needs to stop. Yeah, they need to change, really. It needs to change. Yeah. I don't know anyone, even people who's who are okay with their kids having these things once in a while, 
I don't know anyone who wants their kids having cupcakes every week at school. Uh, it's a problem for all parents and that it has to change from the parents. Yeah. Just one thing to mention is that, of course, we're talking about a, a really optimal scenario, you know, when you can actually make your own stuff. But in the real world, you know, sometimes people, you know, let their kids eat what, what's ever at the party. Yeah. In that situation, we just want to do as much as we can at home. Good. That's that's a sorry. I That's such a good point that I have to jump in and say good point. Thanks, Megan. Um, you know, that's where you really build the resilience of your kids is when you have the control at home. And that ends up being, you know, 90, 95% of the time. So when you give them the good stuff, then they can handle some bad stuff in, in our real world situation. Yeah. So being consistent at home is such an important part of this conversation that they know what they can have at home. And then when they're out, a treat is a treat. And there's no problem and no stress around that. And I guarantee I will have a problem and stress around it, but that's my own stuff I need to deal with. <laughs> and yeah. I will have to learn to be okay with it. Yeah, we've had some friends, you know, who have raised their children, you know, on good foods. And what they've actually told us, we, we've heard this story a number of times, is that when that kid goes out and has a uh, soft serve ice cream for the first time, for example, they actually don't like the taste of it. Yeah. We've heard that a lot too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the final tip we have is you got to get your kids cooking. Start early. Do you know when we started Finn cooking? I don't. You don't have the same ridiculous chronology memory like I do. But at around 18 months, I got him this little wooden knife and he started cutting mushrooms and cleaning mushrooms. And the knife is not a sharp hazardous knife. But we got him a learning tower. So this thing he can stand on and be at counter height with us. We started him cleaning, helping clean mushrooms, helping tear lettuce from 18 months. And so now when we're cooking, he climbs up into his tower and he waits for his job and he participates in the meal preparation. And what's interesting is he'll eat things while we're prepping and cooking in that tower that he will not eat when we sit down at the table, but he's getting it in. So get those kids involved, educate them around the food and what you're serving and the good things about it. We give Finley a smoothie making demo virtually every morning when we make our breakfast. And so that information gets ingrained in our kids and we can't underestimate their extreme interest, curiosity, intelligence. And so if we can share with them what a food is, why we're eating it, the best ways to enjoy it, why it's so good for us, that power goes a long way. Right. And he loves doing it. So it's a really great activity for parents to get their kids involved in to keep them busy while you're trying to prep their meal. Yeah. Right? Like, like do it with them. We appreciate that this is a, a challenging thing for all parents. And we're early in the game and we probably will have to do an update on the next season and let you know where we're at in terms of raising and feeding our little man. Uh, we hope that he will continue on this path. And we, you know, it's a lesson for us as parents and for practitioners to continue learning from him with what works and what doesn't work. Know that every effort you make is awesome, is important. It's all good. And just, just do your best. Don't beat yourself up. Don't be so hard on yourself. Next mealtime is another opportunity to give it a try. And it's Obviously, maybe it's not obvious. It's easier when you start from the beginning in this way. Transitioning kids to this way is a struggle and is a challenge. Is it worth it? Absolutely. So give it your all and see where you land and let us know what chips and tricks work for you. 
Thank you once again for joining us. For all the links we've mentioned, head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast. And it's all there ready and waiting for you. If you love this episode and are wanting to bring more healthful and delicious kid approved foods into your home, maybe they're kid approved and parent approved, and to do so with confidence and the knowledge to support your decisions, then head on over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. We offer the program at four levels. So if you're interested in learning this material for personal reasons only, we've got you covered with our honorary level. There is no other program like this that will set you up for incredibly empowered success in the kitchen. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. This is such great information, we think. And if you have anyone in mind that might benefit from that, please share it with them. We have just a couple episodes left in the season. So if you've missed any, be sure to check out our past episodes. Each one offers practical tips that can positively impact your health today. We look forward to connecting with you again next time. Bye, everybody.